as our gift to you. Again, we will be in James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it really is a joy to be here with you this morning. Having grown up in this area, I know that areas like McLean and Falls Church and Arlington and Alexandria can be really rough places in terms of the gospel and moving forward with the gospel. So many people are transient. They come into our area. They're very career-driven. I was very career-driven. I used to work down on K Street. Um, and I just know that this area desperately needs the gospel. Uh, our area needs it too, but uh, I'm really just overjoyed to see you all here this morning because I know God's going to use you. God's going to use you in this community to advance the kingdom of his son. So uh, I was talking to Steve earlier, and when I accepted the assignment to come here, I hadn't put together that today was Mother's Day. So for those of you who are moms, happy Mother's Day. Um, but I have to tell you that today's topic is actually on relational conflicts. So a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, but actually, the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, we deal with fights, quarrels, conflicts all the time. It's a big part of life, isn't it? And you think about, well, who has conflicts? And the reality is we all have conflicts at some point in our lives, and usually multiple conflicts at any one given time. We might have them with a spouse or with roommates, with our parents or with our children, with a boss, with coworkers, teachers, classmates, friends. Conflict is sort of all around us all the time. But what does it look like? Well, the reality is conflicts can come in a lot of different sizes, shapes, varieties. They might be kind of minor conflicts where you're just sort of annoyed with somebody or you just roll your eyes and you're just showing your displeasure with them. Or maybe you just give them a cold shoulder and you just start to ignore that person. Other end of the spectrum, some of the conflicts can become pretty serious, can't they? Serious anger issues, sometimes marriages ending in divorce, violence, and so conflict is not only prevalent, but it comes in all different sizes. But the question is, and the text addresses today is, why do we have conflicts? What's going on? Like why? Here's James writing this letter to Christians, and he's talking to them about conflicts. And you're like, well, we're Christians. We shouldn't have any conflicts. Well, I hate to tell you this, but some of the most regular conflicts you're going to have is with other Christians. It happens all the time. But Why? And do we know why? Do we know what's really at the root of why we have our conflicts? What's the real cause? And our text today is going to reveal to us that the real cause lies within our hearts. If we look a little deeper, it's 
the idols of our hearts. This is the root of why we have fights and quarrels. And yet in our text today, God gives us great hope. He tells us how God gives us more grace. And he provides a way of escape and a way to change from this pattern of conflict that we can sometimes find ourselves in. And he shows us how to repent. So even though the topic is relational conflict, I think this ends with actually really good news. So bear with me here. And I want to tell you about a conflict that I had recently. I was driving back from Baltimore, Maryland, and you guys know the Beltway in 95, right? Like, it's torture, right? You get on those roads and you just want to get off them as soon as possible. Well, my wife and I had to drive up to Baltimore pretty regularly because our oldest adopted daughter has congenital heart defects and she needed a heart transplant up at the University of Maryland. So we pretty routinely would go up there while she was on the transplant list and, um, and, and go up for her regular checkups. And my daughter one time, uh, we got her some new AirPods and I told her, I said, hey, please keep them in your thing because she can be a little bit forgetful sometimes. And I encouraged her to to do that. And yet one time when we were at a doctor's appointment, we were on our way back down 95, and it was right around 2.30. And the reality is you better get on the beltway by 3 or you're in big trouble because you're just not going to get around back out to Fairfax. And so I had a mission in mind. And all of a sudden, we're about 10 minutes outside of Baltimore, and I hear this, hey, Dad, I can't find my AirPods. Oh, my heart just sank at that point. So I said, well, you know, look around. Did you look everywhere? Yeah, I looked everywhere. And I'm thinking, oh, no, we're going to have to go back to the doctor's office. And this is just going to end up ruining the whole rest of the day. And so I said, are you sure you can't find them? She goes, no, I can't find them. So then I asked my wife. I say, Bonnie, can you uh, find the number of the doctor's office and call just to see if they're there? Because if they're there, maybe we'll know to go back. But if they're not, they're probably just somewhere in the car. So it's all very logical to me. Everything's going great, right? Until my wife couldn't find the number of the office. And so at this point, dreading where all this is heading, I decide to pull over the car, get out of the car, look under the seat, and then find the AirPods. Mission accomplished, give them back to my daughter, get back in the car, and I proceed to go home. And I just gave you the sanitized version of what happened. (laughs) That's not what was going on in my heart. No, what the ugly version is, is that the tone of my voice was firm with my daughter and with my wife. I was demanding them to take action in the way that I wanted them to do it and in the way that I wanted them to do it. When I pulled over, it was a rather sudden pullover. And after finding the AirPods, I actually drove off quickly and was very quiet in the car on the way home. I was annoyed. I was angry at what had happened. I was upset with my wife and daughter. This was very avoidable in my terms. See, in Vinnyland, everything goes very orderly. It goes the way that I want it to go. But they were not participating They were not feeding my idols. They were not giving me what I want. And so I reacted. And as I was quiet in the car, and clearly I was upset with my wife and daughter, knowing that this was avoidable, um, especially because I tried to warn my daughter about not losing. It was one of those specific ones when you just know that God has his thumb on. It's like we even talked about this one. Well, my wife, who is a great treasure and a blessing from God, I'm so grateful to have a godly spouse, um, she said, um, well, she sees right through my antics, uh, which is good. 
uh, and she said, hey, uh, you weren't very nice uh, just now. And again, just a little bit of silence, sort of doing the, okay, I'm thinking about that, sort of feigning some spirituality. Oh, okay, maybe that's a possibility. Uh, but internally, I knew I could have done better. Uh, but sort of fake it till you make it, you know, kind of thing. You just, oh, okay. But I didn't really say anything. And a little bit of time went by. And Bonnie, very graciously, this is when it's really a benefit to have a spouse who loves you enough to speak the truth to you. Because in a very gracious way, she said, uh, do you think you need to say you're sorry or apologize to us? And, you know, pastor boy over here, it doesn't even dawn on me to do that, right? Oh, I should apologize. Um, she said, you know, you weren't very nice. You were pretty harsh in the way that you acted. And, and now you're not even being gracious with us. Uh, and with regards to how you treated us. And at that point, by God's grace, I knew that the emergency sanctification system of my heart was going off. You know, wah, 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 you have a problem right here. And I knew it, and I'm grateful to God for that. And I was able to apologize, and, uh, and I was sorry for what I did. But in looking back at what happened, I really had to do some diagnosis here. What really went on? I love my wife. I love my daughter. I have no problem taking time off work and going to the hospitals and spending time with her. Like, I'm happy to do that. But just in a dumb situation, driving down 95, all of a sudden, I'm turning into this real jerk, sinfully angry at my wife and my daughter simply because I wasn't getting what I want. So this question in James is actually very timely. What causes fights? What causes quarrels among you? In our text today, we're going to see that sinful desires, when sinful desires take control, God gives us more grace so that we will turn to him and repent. And so let's look at verses 1 through 5. How do sinful desires take control? James asks the question, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? So rhetorical question. In other words, what's the root cause? Do you know why you do what you do? He says this in his answer. Is it not this? That your and listen to the words that he uses, that your passions are at war within you. Not outside of you, within you. You desire, again, something from the internal, and do not have what's the consequence? So you murder. You covet, again, another desire word, and cannot obtain, you're not getting what you want. So you fight and you quarrel. So we have war, murder, fights, quarrels. These are some pretty serious outcomes for Christians. But we also have these internal words, passions, desires, coveting, that are all heart-related. And so James is teaching them a lesson here. He's saying whatever rules our hearts is going to control how we see and respond to other people. And the problem is, you and I, we're pretty deceived. We typically think that people cause our problems. Circumstances cause our problems. We rarely stop to think, no, my problem begins with me. And Jesus talked about this, how a tree is known by its... But in order to know that it's a good tree, it's got to have good roots, right? It's the problems that are inside of us that we either choose to ignore or we, we become deceived and we try to blame it on other things, not wanting to take responsibility for ourselves. You see, it wasn't my daughter losing her AirPods or my wife not finding the number of the office. The problem was I had desires that went beyond loving God and loving my neighbor. 
I had desires to please myself. I had things that I wanted that they weren't giving me. And so I responded. And friends, this is the problem of remaining sin, isn't it? I give you a pretty simple illustration, but as you're sitting there going, uh, yeah, I've done that, or something similar, we, we do this, sadly, on a somewhat regular basis because we always have these desires of our hearts. And if we're not careful and we're not going back to God with these things, they can actually start to rule us and change the way that we relate to other people. And so this is the problem of remaining sin. Though we are fully forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, until we are taken home to be with him, we're tainted by sin. This is the reclamation project that God is after in our lives. And we know that we're to be conformed to the image of Christ from Romans eight twenty nine. but between today and that day, there's this ongoing work of us becoming who we are in Christ through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit where we're given new hearts, but now we learn how to use them. But in this fallen world, we're tempted pretty regularly to not follow that way. And that's where the sin comes in. And so to understand why you're reacting the way you are in a conflict, you first have to understand your own heart. And that's what happened to me in that car ride. And it's a serious problem for all of us. Look at verse 4. Look what James calls these people. He calls them adulterous people. Now, they probably hadn't committed actual adultery, but just as Jesus says that you can murder somebody by being angry, Jesus talk, uh, James is talking about spiritual adultery, where instead of being true to God and loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we're now loving something other than God. And that's what gets revealed in these moments. Paul Tripp says, The cause of my struggle is not the people or the situations in my life, but the heart that I bring to those relationships. This spiritual adultery is not good. It's returning to our old way of living. No longer loving God, but loving ourselves, loving the world. And so James reinforces the thought, continuing on in verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Scripture often uses the term idolatry to explain this type of vain living, doesn't it? Because it amounts to false worship. Instead of worshiping the one true God, we're worshiping something that's not the one true God, either something in our hearts or something that we want. And we worship the creation instead of the creator. So idolatry is trusting in or looking to something other than the Lord for our hope and our happiness, our significance and our security. You see, in my situation, I wanted to get home more than I wanted to love and care for my wife and daughter. I made a choice in that moment, a sad choice, a sinful choice. But that's what was going on when sin starts to take control in my heart. I was choosing me over God and my family. And when our hearts are ruled by sinful desires, there are really only two ways to respond. If you're helping me get what I want, I will be happy with you. If you stand in the way of what I want or what I think I need, I will not be happy with you. And the process of getting to this place is usually very subtle. It's usually not overt. I did not wake up that morning and say, I cannot wait to really get into a fight with my wife and really treat my daughter poorly. And I don't think either of you, any of you do that either. We don't set out to do this. That's why it's so dangerous. And it even gets more complicated because sometimes the things that we want, 
they start off as actually good things. It's a good thing to not sit on the beltway for two hours. It's a good thing to want to go home. I had other things that I was going to do that day. That wasn't where the problem was. The problem was I wanted it too much. And I was willing to sacrifice other things in order to get it. Things of God, things that matter to God, I put off to the side because I wanted what I wanted. So as I say, it's, it's subtle sometimes in our hearts. And this is why we need to understand how this works. And, and it sort of works like this. We usually want something. So like in my case, uh, I wanted to get home. There's nothing wrong with that. But then it turns into a demand in my heart. I convince myself that I must get home. And this is where the desire is no longer an expression of love for God and others. But actually, it's something that I want. I want to be in charge. I want to have control. And then it turns into a need. I actually convince myself that I will get home one way or the other. And something that is desirable is now seen as essential. I'm convinced that I have to have this or I can't be happy. The problem is, is when I get to that point in my heart, there are consequences to those who are around me. You see, when I live that way, I then place an expectation on you to give me what I want. And so I think in my mind, you should do this. You should know where your AirPods are. You should know the number to the, to the hospital or to the doctor's office. I have these expectations. And if you really love me, you'll give me what I want. And when you don't give me what I want, well, I get disappointed in you. And this is where the anger and the conflict starts to break out. This is when our hearts get revealed in the way that we speak to and treat other people who don't give us what we want in a moment. And I'm not in any way absolving people of sinning against you and saying that's fine. But I'm talking about your response when you are sinned against. And in this case, my, I wasn't even sinned against. They were just making a mistake. But whether it's somebody making a mistake that doesn't go the way that you want or somebody who's actually sinning against you, I'm not saying that we want to minimize those things. And we do need to be able to talk to people about the ways that they uh, talk to us or do things. Matthew 18 talks about that, talks about going to our brother in private and resolving issues. No, but what I'm talking about is our disposition towards those people. Do we still have the love of God in our hearts for them? Do we see them as people for whom Christ died? Or if they're not Christians, do we see them as people made in the image of God? And deserving of respect, dignity, and our gracious disposition to bless and not to curse. If you read Romans 12, it's just a catalog of how we're supposed to respond when people don't treat us the way that we want. You see, in God's kingdom, because we have these changed hearts because of Christ, we don't have to respond the way that the world does. And that's what James is talking about. Don't love the world. Love God. And then treat other, others out of that love Because sadly, if you disappoint me, I will probably punish you. I will find some way to respond in anger. And it might be rolling my eyes. It might be rudeness. It might be the silent treatment. It might be just withholding love from uh, from you. It might even be hurtful words. Scripture talks about people taking vengeance or having violence towards other people. These are all a result of people not getting what they want, but not responding graciously as God would have us. David Pallison, a noted counselor, said, cravings underlie conflicts. 
And I just encourage you to think about that. The next time you're in a conflict with your roommate or a parent or a child or a friend or a coworker, ask yourself first, do a little Matthew 7, what do I actually want right now that I'm not getting? And idols come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. It could be, I want respect. I want to be heard. I just want to accomplish something. And when people get in the way of that, how do you respond? So cravings underlie conflicts. And so that's sort of the bad news of this. That's the problem that James is addressing. But the good news starts in verse 6. It says, God gives more grace. And that's the second point. Look at verse 6. But he, God, gives more grace. Friends, those are really sweet words, especially when you're caught in sin, to realize that you who cannot help yourself are going to be helped by God because he is graciously disposed to help his children. Friends, that's really good news. He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so James is giving them the hope of the gospel. He's reminding them of who God is and what God has done for them because the minute they hear the word grace, alarm bells go off in their minds. They remember the grace of God. That while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. They know that once they were living in opposition to God, hating God, being in fights and quarrels with other people, but now they have been reconciled to God and been given peace with God and peace with others because of Christ formed in them. Because of the spirit that was apportioned to them. Children of God. They knew that God's grace is foundational to their salvation. He has already been gracious. In this gospel, we know that sinners are saved by grace alone. It's not because we deserved it. It's because God set his affections on us. And through Christ, he redeems us. And Christ demonstrates a great love for us, doesn't he? That while we were still sinners, Christ died on that cross as a substitute for you and for me. So we know when we have these conflicts, we know that our sins are already forgiven. The question is, how are we going to respond when our sin gets exposed? Are we going to go back to the garden and be like Adam and Eve and hide? That's typically my thing. I just try to move away from God and from those circumstances. Or are we going to get the grace that God provides for us in those moments? You see, friends, God's grace is an essential component of the sanctification process. It's not like God saves us and then we just work out our salvation with fear and trembling and we just work hard. You see, we forget the other part of that sentence. For it is God who is at work in you to will and act for his good pleasure. So our process of changing to become more like Jesus is a partnership with God by the Spirit where we have a volitional aspect, where we actually do commit to working hard at this, but we also know that we are humbly dependent on God to actually make it come to pass. And it forces us into a deeper and ever deeper relationship with God so that we can behold His glory and become like His Son. God's grace is essential in this moment as we're being conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 6b says, Therefore, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when it says the proud, that word that's used there, he means he sort of pushes against our pride. When we're acting in pride, acting autonomously, independent from God, focused in and curved in on ourselves, 
God's word says, yeah, God's going to actually oppose that. And I don't know about you, but I find that opposing God and being opposed by God doesn't, doesn't go well. But God will resist me because he disciplines those he loves until we understand that we need to live our lives humbly dependent upon him. And so he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who acknowledge their dependence on him and to realize, where does my help come from? In that moment in the car, I had to ask myself, where is my help going to come from? Because if I just try to tell myself, okay, now be nice and be gracious and put on a smile and drive home and be Mr. Nice Guy, that will last about till the next exit, right? Because when we do this in our own effort, it never really lasts, does it? No, the only lasting change that we experience in this life is the spirit-wrought change that comes from within. When God gets to the, the real depths of our hearts and he pokes around a little bit and he finds out, what do you really want right now? And he helps us. And he gives more grace. You know, humility is hard to define, isn't it? If you look it up, there are all kinds of definitions. I'm going to read to you two definitions of humility that I think they come at it slightly different, but I think combined they, they are really helpful. One of them comes from a pastor, Crawford Lawrence, and he says this. He says, humility is the intentional recognition that God is everything to you and that you are nothing without him. It is the acknowledgement that life is not about you and that the needs of others are more important than your own. I love how that just gets the focus off me and onto God and onto others. The second one is by Tim Keller, and he turns a good phrase here. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. In other words, stop thinking about ourselves. Let's live our lives with that transformed perspective where we live for God and we live for the interests of others. This is what Philippians 2 is all about considering the interests of others. And it goes into this beautiful portrayal of what Christ has done for us in demonstrating this kind of humility. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and came down, dwelt among us, was rejected, betrayed, crucified for us. Oh, friends, we have a great picture of humility in Jesus Christ. One commentator says, God has not merely given us an abstract definition of humility. In the person of Jesus Christ, he has himself displayed humility. And so if you want to cultivate humility, keep studying the person of Christ. Look at how he lived in submission to the Father and with great love and interest and care for others gives us a great example to follow. And it says, and God gives grace to the humble. What are the means of grace that God uses? Well, one, he gives us his spirit and he promises to never leave you nor forsake you. So no matter how big your conflict is or how deep it is, the first thing to remind yourself is is that God has not left me here. God is with me. And that's the first place that we go is we go back to the Lord and acknowledge that he is with us. God's word is also a wonderful tool. God's word, it says in Hebrews, discerns the thoughts and intentions of what? Of the heart. 
And so as you read God's word, as you open it up and as you look into it, it will speak back to you and it will reveal things to you about your heart. As I went back and did a little autopsy of what happened in the car ride, there were several verses that just talked about my selfishness, my self-focus, that I knew that God was speaking to me about. And it helped me to have specificity for what I needed to repent of. So God's spirit changes us. His word changes us. You know, God's people change us too, in a good way. Friends, we are meant as brothers and sisters in Christ to live in community. We're to do this together. Proverbs thirteen twenty says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. There's something about being together as God's people that we should enjoy and we should benefit from. Paul Tripp, a, a commentator, says, personal insight is the product of community. See, the reality is, driving on that car ride home, I was giving myself a lot of free passes for my sanctification. I overlooked a lot of my own stuff. But having a loving friend in my wife be right there with me to help me see things that I didn't want to see or chose not to see or just flat out didn't see, friends, that's a blessing. But that means that we have to open our lives up to other people. This is why church membership is so important. It's where we learn to be vulnerable and honest with one another about what's really going on in our lives. And we all sort of know the whole DC mentality. I mean, it's, there's a lot of show going on outwardly, isn't there? And we can all get caught up in that. But you don't have to live in DC. You can live in Fairfax or San Diego or any other part of the world. It's the same problem. We don't always want to be vulnerable because what's on the inside is kind of ugly. And yet, if we're ever going to make progress, I need you to help me. And you need each other. And we all need each other. And this is God's design. Our circumstances also change us too. Just as Christ learned obedience through what he suffered, sometimes we learn obedience through our mistakes and the trials that we go through. But the hope is, is that we will change. One of my favorite verses on sanctification comes from 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. And it talks about how as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And I love the fact, several things I like about it. One is when I think about sanctification, I don't need to first think about what I'm supposed to do. I need to first think about who I need to know and who I need to go to. I need to behold the glory of the Lord. And secondly, what I love about this is that it happens just one degree of glory to another. And so if you're one of those people that can be pretty hard on yourself whenever you sin and and you don't give yourself a lot of credit or you don't really see much progress in your life and you're just hard on yourself, it's a really good verse to remember because change doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, when we come to faith in Christ, a few things will happen pretty quickly. Like for me, when I became a Christian, I used to cuss all the time. I mean, Every other word was an F-bomb all the time. F and this, F and that. And all of a sudden I got saved. I was like, wow, I'm not saying all that stuff. (laughs) Hey, that's really good. Yeah, the whole pride thing didn't go away as fast. My pride, like I just have a fundamental view. I walk into any situation. I probably think I'm smart. I think I have a good, something to contribute here. Like you probably need to know what I'm saying. I just have a disposition of pride. I have a very high opinion of myself. So some things in the Christian life go away really fast. Some things take a lifetime. But I'd encourage you to think about those things that take a lifetime as actually being for your benefit. Because if everything went away so quickly, I don't think we would rely on God as much. And that's what God wants us to do in our sanctification. 
He wants us to look to him. Humility is humble dependence on God. It's crying out to God saying, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And so there's no silver bullet in sanctification, but we have a wonderful Savior who helps us in it. And that's who we turn to. And in wrapping up, what does repentance look like? Well, look at verse 7. And I love how this points us back to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, to all of His ways, to obedience to Him. It's that volitional aspect in our hearts. We say, God, I want to go your way. As we were driving down 95, as we were about to get onto the beltway, I just started to tear up a little bit. I just realized as the Spirit was working in my heart, I was like, I was just sad. I was grieved over my sin. And I trust it was a 2 Corinthians 7 type of grief, a godly grief, where I realized, first, my sin was against God. I have this lovely wife and beautiful daughter, and we're getting all this help for her. And here I am, acting just like a worldly person. And so we humble ourselves before God, and we submit ourselves to God. And I remember praying, God, don't let me do that again. Help me to not be like that. But then it says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I won't have time to talk about this, but go read Ephesians 6 and look about the spiritual battle. We don't talk about it a lot, but it is a very real battle. The enemy does not want us to follow Jesus, and he will fight against us. But friends, we can resist him in the strength that God supplies. And then it finishes up. It says, draw near to God. And I love this. And he will draw near to you. Friends, isn't that good news? So yes, where do fights and quarrels start and fights, all that stuff? It's in our hearts. It's ugly, creates wars, violence, anger, all this other stuff. But friends, in and through Jesus Christ, there's grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Isn't that good news? And as you're thinking here today of people that you might be in a conflict with, I just encourage you as you're driving home today or if you're with somebody, whether it's alone in private or even just in a conversation, I'd encourage you, think and pray about how God wants to change that situation first by addressing your heart. Go to him. Ask him for help. It will be, it will be a balm for your soul. God w- wants to bring healing to these things. It doesn't mean that every conflict will always get resolved because Romans 12 says that, hey, sometimes we only can do things so far as it depends on us because it takes two. But it is very freeing to be in a situation where you know that God looks upon you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were my ambassador in that situation. You responded the way that I wanted you to respond. So when sinful desires take control, God gives more grace so that we will turn to him and repent and receive forgiveness from him and another day to move forward with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.